Okay, well, we're on our last session, session eight of our series on the Song of Solomon, Engaging Jesus, Engaging the Bridegroom in the Song. And uh, it's been a rich study. I've really enjoyed approaching it again and uh, have appreciated how the Lord has continued to just unpack truths in a practical way that really will touch and transform our hearts just as they're making their way around. Anyone else need an outline? Anybody get missed? Just want to make sure everybody's got one. Okay, good. Good. So uh, today we'll go ahead and finalize um, the last part of chapter 7 and go through chapter 8. And, um, and we'll wrap up this week. And so this has been a good series. I've, I've enjoyed the way the Lord's ministered to us. All right, let's look at Roman numeral 1 and just get the review of where we have been through chapter 6 and 7. Um, remind, we're just remembering the bride. She'd come through that season of trial. And in chapter 6, she's still actually in this season of trial. She's without Jesus' presence, and she's apart from him. But it's in that time where uh, the, the, the daughters of Jerusalem, who are other believers, they represent other believers, they actually approach her and they say, we want to seek him with you. Where is he? And what's happened is this, that she has grown in maturity to such an extent that now other people are looking at the testimony of her life and, and they're saying, we want to know him too. And this is what happens with believers as they grow in maturity with Jesus, they grow in love with Jesus. What happens is this, that all of a sudden there's something about them that other people notice. And what we're going to find out, and what we found out last week, I mean, is that there were uh, evidences of the transformation that he had done in her heart through love that, that became clear to everyone around. And those evidences of Jesus' work in her life we're drawing others, and that's, that's where we want to be. We want to be to that place where, I mean, God's worked in us to such an extent that people that see us, people around us, maybe people that are close to us or people that are acquaintances, they see something happening on the inside of us, and they say, you know what? I want to know what this is. What have you gotten into in the Lord that's so changing you? It's transformed you, and that's what her process was. And so then Jesus, he shows up, and it's the first time he appears since she'd been in this season of trial in the dark night, and he just begins to affirm her, and he says the, one of the, the most stunning statements in the Bible, he says, you've overcome me. You've overcome me. Your eyes, uh, one, one glance, you've overcome me. You're, you're awesome, like an army victorious from, from battle. And uh, you're beautiful and royal, and you've overcome me. And, and that thought that our look of faithful um, love to Jesus moves his heart that way, that it actually impacts Jesus, that's an incredible thought. Um, so often we think we can put God in a, a, a picture where we think of him as this stoic God and, and one who's uh, emotionless, and that's completely the... The furthest thing from the truth, he's, he's fully emotional. He experiences all the, the richness of emotion. The reason why you and I have emotions, it's, it's because we're created in the image and likeness of God. He's very emotional. He feels emotions. And he is, uh, how do I say it? He, he 
peaks in the emotion of love when his people keep a faithful, steady gaze upon him through trials and challenges. That's what he expresses to her. You've overcome me. Your faithfulness through the trial and the challenge, it's overcome me. And so then what happens is this, from that place, she enters into love for the church. She finds herself in authority and ministry. Uh, She says before she knew it, uh, she, her soul had set her over the chariots of her noble people, talking about being having authority in the church and in ministry. And then there's this interesting interaction where she gets acceptance from a group that's a part of the church, and she gets rejected from a group that's a part of the church. And there's, it's called the dance of the two camps. The, the one group appreciates her, her uh, complete devotion and love for Jesus. The other group doesn't so much appreciate it. And isn't that how it is? You know, you're just... You know, mind your own business trying to serve Jesus, and you just can't help it, but somebody got mad, and you didn't know why or how or what happened, but somebody's mad, and somebody's glad, and you don't, you don't know. You're just trying to serve the Lord. That's just how it is at times. Serving Jesus will be a, a time of blessing, and there will be challenges, and part of that is acceptance from people that, that, are, that are loving the Lord, and then rejection at times from people. That's just part of the package. So then in chapter 7, what we end up having is this, this two-fold affirmation of her where the group that's accepted her, they come back and they affirm that there's been a transformation. It's evident on her. They see the transformation that Jesus has worked in her and that she's beautiful and they vindicate her. And then Jesus shows up and he vindicates her, which is always the case. I would encourage you, when you have trials and challenges with people, it's so easy to try to defend yourself. It's so easy to try to vindicate yourself. But there's one who will vindicate you who's way better than you at vindicating people. Jesus. Let Jesus do it. Let him be the vindicator. Let him deal with other people's hearts. And, uh, you know, if... if Sometimes we want things to play out when we have challenges with people. We want them to play out in a certain way. We really want that person to get theirs for doing what they did or saying what they said. But you know what? The Lord knows what they should get. Let him vindicate. And aren't you glad you didn't get yours for all the things you've done? Come on now. It's amazing how we can think we're perfect as soon as somebody else does us wrong. You know, somebody does us wrong, and we're like, man, I'm just, they, they just really deserved God to just like judge them right now, instantly. It's like, well, aren't you glad he didn't judge you instantly the last time you did somebody wrong? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> and then, you know, you got the whole group that go, I've never done anybody wrong. Okay. <laughs> we'll do a special altar call just for you at the end of the service. So that's the case. She waits, he vindicates her. He's, he affirms that she is mature, invites her into partnership and ministry, and, uh, and then in verse 10, she says, I am his. I am his, and he is mine. And that's really the, the two bookends of that last section. She says, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. She knows that she's owned by him. I was, uh, I was talking to a, a young adult this week, and they were telling me of, of the... Uh, the reality that um, had hit them about marriage. <clears throat> they said, you know, I just realized I've had a lot of fantasy about what marriage could be for me. And, and I just realized this, that man, you know, it's just not all, you know, fun and games. 
I mean, when you get married, you, you're, you're not your own anymore. I mean, when you get married, you're, you're submitting to someone else. You know, when you get married, you can't just do everything you want to do all the time. And I said, yeah, that's true. And I said, but you know what the, the interesting thing is? As naive as you were before and as, as wise as you are now about what marriage holds, I said, you're just that naive still. And they said, well, well what do you mean? I said, well, when you got saved, you couldn't do everything you wanted to do and you weren't your own and you're actually already in that state where someone else owns you. And that's Jesus. I said, marriage just amplifies that truth. They're like, oh, see, I don't want any part of that. I don't want, I don't want, I don't want to know anything about that. But it's really the truth. And that's what, the, that's what she says. That's what the maid says. I am my beloved's. We've been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus, he's purchased us with his death on the cross. We're his, and he is ours. Amen. Okay, so let's go ahead and pick it up here in verse 11. And uh, we'll, we'll, I'm going to have to move because the, the real good part is in chapter 8, verse 6. But there's so many cool things. I just, allow me just to move through it fairly quickly. Again, I'm just reading the menu. You take the menu to your own time of study and prayer, and, and you can order what you want in, 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 in the study of the scripture. All right. Verse 11. Come, my beloved, let us go forth to the field. Let us lodge in the villages. Let us get up early to the vineyards. Let us see if the vine is budded, whether the grape blossoms are open and the pomegranates are in bloom. There I'll give you my love. The mandrakes give off a fragrance. And at our gates are pleasant fruits. All men are new and old, which I have laid up for you, my beloved. This is the bride now speaking to the bridegroom. And isn't it interesting? Because early in the story, remember, he was saying, come with me, arise with me, let us go to the mountain. And uh, she wouldn't go. But now here we are, and she's in this state of mature love. And who's the one inviting him to go? She is. She's saying, I want to go with you. Come with me, my beloved. Come to the fields. Now, the fields represent ministry. Come, let's partner together in ministry. Let's go forth to the fields, and let's experience the fruitfulness of ministry. She says, let's go to the vineyards. Let's see if the vine is budded, where the grape blossoms are open. So she is saying, I want to encounter you intimately in the place of ministry. I, I, I recognize that the secret place is with you wherever you are. She goes, come, let's do this together. It's, it's not about my own strength or my own vision or my own desires. I say this so often, young people and, and really believers in general, they get a, a desire to serve the Lord in some form of ministry, whether it's marketplace or some sort of vocational missions or whatever, and they feel like they've got to go do something for Jesus. Do something for Jesus. And uh, I would just say this. I don't want to do anything for Jesus. I want to do everything with Jesus. I want to do it with him. And, and that's the transformation that's happened in her. Whereas before she was working to try to get other people's approval. And that's why she was burned out in chapter 1. Now she's saying, Let's go together. I want to do this with you, Jesus. I want to experience intimacy with you, Jesus, in the place of ministry, in the field. I don't ever want to do it without you. And that's the bottom line. 
when it comes down to ministry, you know, and I like to say everybody's a missionary. You're either a vocational or a marketplace missionary, but everybody's a missionary. When it comes down to ministry, we don't ever want to do it without him. We don't want to do it for him. We want to do it with him. That's a transforming truth because if, if you can get out of that sort of performance mentality, I'm doing this for the Lord, I'm working for the Lord, I'm trying to get the Lord, you know, pleasure and praise here, and you can transform from that mentality to I'm doing it with him. I mean, of course he's the one that gets the glory. Yes, I agree with that. But if you can think of it, I'm doing this with Jesus, Jesus and I together, his grace empowering me. The little yes in my heart, he's the one with the power. I say yes and we do it together. That will transform the way you look at everything. Because when it comes down to ministry, the, the, the issue isn't how successful is the ministry. The issue is, are you intimate with Jesus? When we, when we look at our ministries on the basis of numbers, finances, you know, sphere of influence, Whatever it is, and people measure their successes on those bases, they step over the line and they get out of uh, the, the understanding the truth that success isn't found in anything you, quote unquote, do for the Lord. Success is you're loved by God and you're a lover of God. That's success. And everything you do, you get to do it with him. And so that's where she is in this mature state. Love is the governor of her heart. She's saying, I want to go with you. I want to go to the fields. Let us go to the villages. She's talking about different areas of ministry. Let's go to the vineyards. And she says, let's see the vine. See if it's budded. Let's see if the grape blossoms are in bloom. That is, an, that is a metaphor that speaks of fruitfulness in ministry. You could take that metaphor uh, and apply it any way you want. I've, I've heard people apply this like revival, like the harvest has come. And I like that one because I want to see revival. I want to see it in our city, in our nation, in the nations of the earth. That the harvest is ripe. You know, that revival has come. I like that idea. And then she says, it's in that place of fruitfulness in ministry. There, I'm going to maintain intimacy with you. I'll, I'll give you my love in that place. We're going to stay connected in heart, even in the place of fruitful ministry. Verse 13, mandrakes. Mandrakes are known as a, as a love flower, a flower of love, and uh, it's giving off this fragrance, and that's the, the uh, experience of fruitful partnership this, the, the, that they have together, that it's, it's actually putting forth that, that pleasant fragrance, and, uh, and she says, I have stored up fruits for you, my beloved. I've stored up fruits for you, and uh, earlier in the song, he's wanting to go to her garden. He wants to... to uh, to inspect the fruit of her life. And now she says, I've stored up the fruits for you. There's, there's plenty here in my heart for you to experience of me. I'm, I'm all yours and you're all mine. All right, verse one of chapter eight. This verse is, it confused me for a long time. So I wanted to put it in there as a little point of clarification to help. So, oh, that you were like my brother who nursed at my mother's breast. If I should find you outside, I would kiss you. I would not be despised. Uh, like my brother. Here's the idea. The idea is this, that in the ancient world, a brother and a sister, especially in Eastern cultures, would easily walk around the street holding hands or arm in arm or, or you, know, uh, you know, arm around each other. And no one would think a thing of it. And so she's referencing 
the idea that she's despised and rejected by certain ones in the church. And she says, oh, that they would see that our, our connection is, is legitimate, that it's okay, and that they would receive from that as well. She said there wouldn't be any despising in it. And, and the idea is this, that as you're growing in the Lord, as you're growing in intimacy with Jesus, as you're maturing in love, and then there's those that are despising you, that you have a heart of intercession for them instead of accusation. Amen. That's a critical thought. You know, when you go through the paces of growing and people have an issue with you, that you don't try to just get into this back and forth deal where you're trying to defend, but that you just pray. You just pray for people. Just love them, pray for them, that they would enter into to, uh, a, a deeper relationship with the Lord themselves, and that's what she's asking. She says, oh, that they would see you that way, that you, they'd see you as one that, that I'm close to and that they could be close with you too. That's the idea of that one. All right, flip on over. Okay, verse three. <clears throat> this, this phrase is repeated a few times through the song. This is a life phrase for all of us. This is a phrase that expresses the way that God ministers in all of our lives. She says this, his left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Now the left hand and the right hand of God, they represent two different things. The left hand represents the hidden ways that God moves in our lives that we are unaware of. And so when she says, his left hand is under my head, his left hand, it's the unseen ways that God has held her and has, has directed her. The head is where, you know, wherever your head goes, that's where your body goes. His left hand is under my head, the unseen ways the Lord has directed our lives. And I, I just look at my journey and, and having obviously been pastoral ministry for 20 plus years, looking at so many journeys of so many people and watching how the Lord has worked out the details of their life and seeing that there's just no way that they could have gotten themselves where they did had it not been for the left-handed activities of God. Those unseen things that God's moving around, directing the course of our life, directing the affairs of our lives, at certain times keeping us out of calamities that we didn't even know about, at certain times moving us in a direction that had four or five big implications that we didn't even understand why we did that. But uh, I can't tell you how many times somebody's come to me and said, you know, I don't even know why I did that. But when I did, the Lord did this, 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 and this. And that whole, I don't even know why I did that. And, and it ended up in, in sweet things in God. That's the left-handed activities of the Lord. And there's a bunch of times you don't even know the left-handed activities of the Lord. I think we'll get there, you know, and we'll, we'll, be, we'll be with the Lord reviewing our life. And he'll show us. All the left hands, all the time that his left hand was behind our head, that he was directing us, silently moving us and wooing us, and we had no idea that he was directing the course of the affairs of our life, keeping us from challenges, sometimes keeping us out of, of uh, prosperity that would have ruined us. Come on. 
People are like, man, if I just had a million dollars, come on, Lord, give me the million. His left hand's going, that million is not going to happen. I'm just going to keep you out of calamity. It'll destroy you. So that left hand of God, I, I am so thankful for the left hand of God's activities in my life. The stuff that I don't know that's happening, but that I know that he is doing. He's always moving in our lives. And, and that's a statement of his sovereignty, how he directs, how he leads. Now the right hand, it embraces. Now you feel an embrace. And the right hand is, is indicative of the power of God. And so the right hand are the power activities of God, okay? They're the, the things where you see the immediate change. Uh, you see the, 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 the power of God move in an immediate way. I'll give you a little testimony. This week where I saw the right hand of God, I was um, <clears throat> with our Acts students who are getting ready to deploy to the 1040 window in the Middle East for 10 weeks. And um, several of them are short on, on finances. And, uh, and so I, I wasn't planning on talking to them about provision and, and things like that. I just had a little, little leading in my heart that I wanted to go talk to them and love on them before they left and just tell them how encouraged I was by their testimony and their faithfulness. And, um, and so uh, several of them are short on finances. So I go in there and the Lord reminds me of several times that he provided for me supernaturally. Well, we're having a little time of worship, and I'm just going to get up in there and just talk to him for a minute, and really not thinking to say anything about finances, but I start getting these, these reminders. So I get up there to talk to him, and I share with him. I said, I feel like the Lord wants me to tell you this, and I share a few different stories where the Lord provided for me in supernatural ways. And I said, I feel like the Lord wants us to pray, and I want to pray for you guys un, unto this end. And, um, and so literally we pray, and and it's, 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 you can feel the presence of the Lord, the, the encouragement of the Lord is there, and, and there's still a great, great needs represented. And, uh, but people feel faith, they feel encouraged, and, and I feel it too, and I feel like, man, God's gonna do this. So I, I walk out of the Acts Chapel, and I walk, which is over here in this, our little trailer, and I walk in here, and, and I'm gonna go to the restroom before I can even go, uh, uh, a little lady comes and grabs me, and she says, I need to talk to you. Um, I said, okay, and, and she says, I've been praying, and she tells me this story, and she says, and, um, and the Lord's had me to, to, to uh, pray for finances. She goes, and I want to give you this. Somebody had actually given her uh, finances for, uh, she handed me a $1,000 check. I just got finished praying. 30 seconds earlier, I walk over here, a $1,000 check in hand. I was like, I just, and I said what you don't say. I go, I can't believe it. <laughs> wow. I made a beeline back over there. I walked in and said, uh-uh, oh, no. Oh, no, 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 no. You can't believe this. $1,000. And those act students started crying. We had just prayed for God to break in. It's the right hand of God. It's the right hand of God's power encounters in our life. And uh, interestingly enough, I'll tell you another little part of that. One of the students had, they'd shared during our time of prayer, they said, I just had a vision where I opened my mailbox and there were three checks in my mailbox. And I said, well, let's just believe that the Lord's gonna do that. And do you know, they went right from that chapel, right home, opened their mailbox. There were three checks in their mailbox for $400. Come on now. He's good like that. His right hand. 
He does all sorts of stuff like that. I mean, it's, you, know, you can get to the place where God's right hand moves and you want it to be bigger and more exciting and sometimes we can disdain the little activities of God. He's, he's talking to us moving in our lives all the time. And we need to value the right hand. His right hand embraces us. It's what we feel. It's what we experience. It's the stuff that we recognize, the activities of the Lord. That is a way God works in all of our lives. Left hand, stuff you can't see. Right hand, the stuff that you know that he's doing. Okay. Verse 5. Now, the, the narrator or the Holy Spirit or whoever says this. Who is this? Coming up from the wilderness, leaning upon her beloved. Who is this? Who is she? It's the same question from chapter 6, verse 10. Who is she? Remember, who looks forth like the dawn, who looks like the sunrise. Who is she? Here again. Who is she? Who is this who's leaning on her beloved? And here we have, it's the end of the story, and she has transformed into the image of the beloved. Who is she? Is it two or is it one? Is it, she's leaning on him. She looks just like him. Who is she? She's, she's irrecognizable from where she started the story. And what's happened is that transformation and maturity, it's taken place, it's come to fruition, and she is now, uh, to use New Testament language, conformed to the image of Christ. This is our journey, guys. We're on a journey to conformity, conform to the image. What does that mean? That means we look like him. And so this recline where she's leaned, she's leaned upon him, it's got three little, or, uh, yeah, three, or, three little features, and then there's another point, but uh, she's leaning upon him. It means that she's surrendered to him. She's leaning upon him, and she's transformed into his image. And she's leaning, which means she's not standing or walking in her own strength. She's leaning. She's, she's relying completely on his strength. And so who she is as a mature bride is a picture of the way the church will be operating at the end of the age before the Lord's return. In fact, Song of Solomon 8 has many different facets that, that are um, representative of the end of the age and the Lord's return. And so here we have a picture of the mature bride leaning upon Jesus in surrender, transformed into his image, and standing in his strength or or sitting in his strength, relying on his strength and not her own. Beloved, this is what it looks like. That's what Christian maturity is, trusting him, conformed to his image, exuding his nature and and his presence, and and completely reliant upon his strength and, and not walking in our own. Who is she? Who is this coming up from the wilderness? The wilderness, the trials and the challenges of this age, the trials and the challenges of this world. She's coming up, you know, from the wilderness. She's leaning upon him. She's fully transformed into his image. All right, verse six. And these are some verses that you want to put to memory and put to meditation. Verse six, A. This is the first part of the verse. He says now, he says, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm. A seal. So he's talking about sealing the work of God and the work of love 
in the heart of the believer. And he says, I want to be set upon your heart like a seal. Now, a seal, it's, it's indicative of the, you know, in the ancient world when they would carry a letter, you know, from a king or an authority, that, that letter would have a seal that it means it, it, you know, it would bear the stamp of authenticity, that it was real, but it was also a protection, uh, uh, you know, a seal, it, 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 it spoke of the protection of the royal authority. In other words, if that thing was opened by anyone else, uh, except for who it was intended for, then that thing, it would carry the, the uh, penalty of death even. So if a king sent a sealed letter and somebody intercepted and opened it, that would make them immediately an enemy of the state. The idea is this. He goes, I want to be the seal on your heart. No one else can open it but me. I want to be the the governing authority over your heart. No one else having authority but me. I am the seal on you. I'm the seal on your heart and the seal on your arm. The seal on the heart is the emotions and, and the will, the internal desires. The seal on the arm, the activities of the life, the, all the, the things you do. The practical idea of that is this. We can ask Jesus to be the governor on our hearts, to be the governor on our actions, and for his love to be the governing agent over all we feel, think, desire, and do. And that's what this is pointing to, that Jesus, his love, would govern all of our thoughts, all of our emotions, and all of our actions. He goes, set me there. Now, it's interesting because that, that, the language of that requires an agreement. It's not that he does it to you. He doesn't say, I'm, gonna, I'm going to seal you. He says, you agree, set me as the seal. It's that partnership in love. And beloved, this is really the bottom line. This is where this thing is going. When I mean this thing, us and Jesus. Us and Jesus is going to this. You governed by love in all of your thoughts, in all of your desires, in all of your activities with Jesus as the plumb line over your heart. He goes, set me there. I remember as a young man having a, a, a picture of myself as, a, as an older man, and I saw myself governed by love. Now, I'll be honest, when I was, when I was 19 or 20, whenever I was having that little picture, that inner, inner picture, inner vision, I didn't even have a value for love. I thought, you know, love's good. I love God. God loves me. Give me power. I was thinking more power and zeal and things like that, and, just didn't have the revelation of love. But I saw myself as a man governed by love, and that's the seal. That's God's dream for all of us, to be people governed by love. He's always working in us for love to and from us. And he wants to set the seal, the governor over our heart, That royal seal of love. Set me as a seal upon your heart. As a seal upon your arm. All your feelings, all your thoughts, and all your actions. I want you to be burning in love and let that be the governor. You know, if love is the governor, guess what? Everything else will work. 
That's why the first and second commandment, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do these, you fulfill all the law. Why? Because that governor of love will keep you engaged with the heart and the nature of God and his desires. That's what this is talking about. Set me as the seal. I love that. Set me as the seal. And then the second part of the verse. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy as cruel as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. I'll tell you, when I first came in contact with this verse, it was an absolute paradigm shift for me. Now, let me just break it down for you. He says, love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. So he's saying love and jealousy work together. His love is a jealous love. That's what he's saying. Love is strong as death, jealousy is cruel as the grave. So love and jealousy he's using interchangeably. He says, it's as strong as death. The force of death that uh, separates even a, a, a human spirit from its body. He says, love is, is strong at that level. That force of love is strong at that level. It's as strong as death. And it, the jealousy of love is even more cruel, more intense is the idea, than the grave. He's using these metaphors that speak of uh, uh, a power that's more powerful uh, than life. Love, as strong as death. Jealousy, as cruel as the grave. The jealous love of God, he's describing it as one of the most powerful forces there is in creation. That's what those metaphors are, are describing. And when I first came in contact with that verse, I thought, huh, love, love is powerful. That's interesting. Because for me, I thought anybody that talked too much about love, they weren't very powerful. I thought love is, you know, it's kind of mushy-like, and it's not, it doesn't have a lot of you know, potency to it. I thought anybody talked about love too much, well, they're just talking about love too much. They need to talk about something else, something more powerful. But what he's saying is love is the most powerful. Love is strong as death. Jealous love. It's, it's, it's intense as intense as, as the grave, the power to hold death. And I thought, man, love is strong in a way that I didn't understand. Love isn't like pink papers and hearts and candies. You know, maybe it can be expressed that way in, in a romantic sense. But, you know, I always thought of love as this sort of thin kind of thing. He goes, no, love is strong. It's powerful. It's jealous. And then so many of the verses in the scripture started to unlock for me. Our God is a, a consuming fire, a jealous God. And see, what I had done is this. I had taken who God was in jealousy and in fire and put it over here and put, he's a judge, he does wrath, he's whatever. You know, he's got this sort of mean side. This is what I used to think. He's got this mean side. And then I go, and over here, he's got like this like sweet side, like Jesus, and he's got a lamb on his shoulder, and he does the cross, and it's kind of nice to children. You know, like, so that's over here. So he's just got two sides. Over here he's sweet. Over here he's like ferocious. And you know, you got the bad stuff. You got like, you know, wrath, judgment, hell. This comes out of the bad side of God. And you got like blessings and happiness and joy. And that comes out of the good side of God. 
And I used to just have him in these two polar opposites. Well, I think a lot of believers have him that way. I think a lot of believers think of God as sort of this schizophrenic guy that he'll just flip on you, man. Like one minute, he's like nice. He's dying on the cross. The next minute, he's like sending people to hell. It's like, what are you doing? And people think of God that way. They think of him as this sort of schizophrenic God who's at odds with himself. Except what you find out is that love and jealousy are interchangeable. Love is powerful. And then the next part of the verse where he says, uh, uh, oh, I just flipped it over to her. A most, uh, it's flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. It's flames, the flames of love. The flames of love are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. And I looked it up in the New American Standard Bible and it says, Instead of a most vehement flame, it's, and this is the way it's literally translated, it says its flames are the very flame of Jah, of the Lord. The flames of love are the fire of God. And I just thought, oh my goodness, I had all of it separated, but it's one in the same. The fire of love is a fire that's jealous the fire of love is a fire that's generous. The manifestation in, in one sense, for those that accept it, is a manifestation of blessing. For those that reject that jealous fire, it's, it's a vehement flame. It's the very fire of God. It, it, it's actually the fire that kindles wrath. That jealous fire is the fire that kindles judgment. I went, oh my goodness, the judgment of God and the blessing of God, they're actually kindled out of the same one fire of who he is. A fiery God burning in jealous love. And when, all, when I saw this for the first time, it came together for me. Now he's not this schizophrenic God. He's, he's fully actualized in his nature. He's unified in heart. He's burning in fiery love that's strong. Love that's strong, not this weak human sentimental love, but a love that's strong, that's jealous, that's fiery, that's passionate, a love that goes all the way, a love that, that causes him to become a human, a love that sends him to the cross to pay for sin, a love that even allows him to descend and experience the judgment of humanity, love that goes all the way, fire of God's love. And when that hit me, my entire paradigm shifted about who he was, what, you know, how he acts, what he's like, the nature of love, the nature of judgment. It's kindled out of the same fire. He's not schizophrenic. He's fully united in his heart. And then, all of a sudden, love took on a completely different value in my own heart. And it was my own arrogance that wasn't valuing love or thinking of, it as an, as a, thinking of it as weak. But all of a sudden I saw, no, love is more powerful than everything else. Love is strong as death. Love is more intense, more cruel than even the grave. It's jealous love. It's fiery love. It's passionate love. And the love of God is the fire of God. 
So when we say Jesus and what's burning in his eyes is fire, he's got eyes of fire, it's easy to see that it's the fire of love. So when he comes back in vengeance to vindicate his bride, he's coming back as one who's fully burning in jealous love to make all the wrong things right for his bride, and he's vindicating. Why? Because of love that burns inside. Oh, man, that transforms how we see him. And too, too many people have him separate in his nature. They, don't, they can't reconcile who God is as a God that does judgment and a God that does mercy. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the very same flame that burns in him, that, that causes him to, to be generous in mercy, is the very same flame that burns in him in jealousy that causes him to release judgment. It's, it's one reality in his heart. The fire of God uh, is the love of God. They're one thing together, and they're powerful. They're strong. Verse 7 It is one thing together. It's powerful. It's strong. Verse 7. He says, many waters cannot quench love. Many waters. You can't can't quench it with many waters. Nor can the floods drown it. There's nothing that can put out the love of God. I used to think, man, I want to be fired up for Jesus. And I just didn't imagine it had anything to do with falling in love. I just didn't get it. If you want to be fired up for Jesus, fall in love. You want to be passionate for Jesus, fall in love, encounter his love. Nothing can put that out. Nothing will burn that out. If you're backsliding, if you backslide from the Lord, you know what it is? You don't have a revelation of love. Many waters can't put that fire out. If the fire of love is burning in your heart, Nothing will extinguish it. You know, get a greater revelation of love and it will cause you to have a greater uh, um, devotion and focus on the Lord. Nothing can put that out. I used to teach holiness apart from the fire of God's love. And now it seems so dumb to me, but I would just teach a do list. You know, you can't do this and you can't do that. Instead, teach a fire of God's love, encounter the love of God, and watch it compel you out of sin and into holiness. It's powerful. The love of God, nothing can extinguish it. Many waters cannot quench it. Floods can't drown it. Look at this. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be despised. What would be despised? The wealth that he's trying to give. You can't buy this. There's nothing you can give that measures to it. Give a billion dollars and it's despised compared to the truth of God's love. That's what we have to have is the seal of love burning in our heart. It will compel us unto radical lives of abandonment with Jesus. Radical lives of righteousness. And where we are lagging or lacking, I'm convinced of it. It has at its root a lack of the revelation of love. Love is as strong as death. It's jealous fire on the inside cannot be quenched. Man, that concept completely transformed my Christianity. 
Because I thought I was going after, you know, two different sides of God. Like, okay, let me, let me find out who you are as this nice God who loves me. And let me, like, steer clear of who you are as this mean God who judges people. And I realized, no, it's one reality together. And it's the, the, uh, the, the epicenter of, of the Christian faith. The, the epicenter of the relationship we have with Jesus is a fiery heart burning in love. So it enables us, by the grace of God, to live righteously, love. That's why there's such an emphasis in the New Testament, to know the love of Christ, the intercessions, that we have no love, the rebuke to the Ephesians church, that they would come back to their first love. Why? Because love is the issue. Why do I preach love so much now? Because it's the central issue. It's the central issue. Understanding who God is as a God of fiery affection for you. He is absolutely head over heels in love for you, jealous for you, your vindicator. He will make all the wrong things right. He loves you. That God, understanding who he is in that way and letting that touch and change you. Letting that impact you. That is the core issue. Everything else ends up being details. It ends up being just details. Once this thing begins, this issue of love begins to get entrance into your life. Man, amen. Verse 13. Now, the bridegroom, the last little bit of the book, he's calling out to the bride. And he says, you who dwell in the gardens. That's, that's her. She's now in ministry, in the gardens. Remember before, he was in his garden Where'd she go? She goes, I want to go with you to the fields and to the gardens. Now she's in the garden. He goes, you who are dwelling in the garden. He goes, uh, I want to hear your voice. The, commandments, the companions listen for your voice. Let me hear it. And, and this is so reminiscent of when Jesus is going to return and you have the spirit and the bride. And they're, what are they doing? They're, they're crying out in prayer. He's asking for this devoted, loving bride. He's saying, let me hear you speak. Let me hear your voice in preaching and in prayer. Let me hear your voice. The companions want to hear it. That's the proclamation. He goes, and I want to hear it. That's the prayers. He goes, let me hear you speak, beautiful bride. And then verse 14, here's what she says. Make haste my beloved, and be like a gazelle, like a young stag on the mountains of spices. He goes, I want, she, she says, I want you to return. Come, come back in the full governance and authority that you carry. Remember that, that imagery of the young stag and, and on the mountains is that, that governing power that Jesus carries, authority over the nations. So she's in intercession now, and she's, this is where we end the Song of Solomon with the bride fully mature in love, sealed in her heart with love as a, as, a, as a plumb line, burning with the fire of love, desiring him and calling him to return. Come on. That's awesome. It's exactly how the book of Revelation ends. Revelation 22, verse 17, the spirit and the bride say come. And he says, surely I am coming quickly. Even so, Lord, come. So this is it. This is the way the story wraps up. This is the way all of our stories will wrap up. Jesus returning to come and govern the nations for a bride who is comparable to him, who looks like him, whose heart is alive in love, who's crying for him to return. 
Amen.